Today our text is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 22. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this is you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Bring, excuse me, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Father, these are your words, and we ask in hearing them and as we look at them together that, Lord, you would come and teach us and lead us and shape us and mold us. And, Lord, I pray that uh, I would not be a hindrance, that your voice would be the prominent one. And, Lord, may we leave here knowing that we've met with you. We give you our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of you know that three weeks ago I celebrated my 65th year of life on this earth. <laughs> and 65 seems to be the benchmark uh, in our current culture by which one is then officially defined as old, I think. So. Uh, it's also the age uh, that we tend to measure and consider and evaluate the kind of lives that we have lived and the kind of lives we are living and the kind of li lives we want to live while we're still here on earth. 
the universally common answer to uh, what you would want to have as a life would be the good life. Uh, the problem with answering that question is, what is the good life? Entire books have been written uh, throughout history about that question. Philosophers and religious leaders of all ages, even today, ponder what it means to live the good life because that means so many different things to so many different people for different ways. In its basic form, the good life is all about the experience and exploration of that which gives us joy and satisfaction. We want, we want to have those in our lives. And it's, the good life is a thing we want to find purpose, we want to have, find meaning, we want to find happiness in the things that we do. And the truth is, I think every human being wants to live the good life in some sense. The truth is, uh, in the world we live in, the good life refers usually to a desirable state primarily characterized by a high standard of living or an adherence to some laws or uh, ethics. In two different expressions here, living the good life is usually either expressed through the abundant, comfortable, prosperous lifestyle full of material belongings or an attempt to live your life in accordance with the ethical and moral and legal laws of a country or culture. As such, a good life can be understood then as a quest, a quest for comfort, a quest for wealth, a quest for material possessions or a quest to do something that's worthwhile or meaningful. And in all these things, it's so nebulous, it's hard to figure out what a good life is. And so what that means in this world as we think about a good life, we really don't know how we can decide what a good life is. But we know, as born-again Christians, uh, we, if we're truly following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we know what the good life is. In the kingdom of God, where Jesus rules in our hearts and reigns in our lives, we look to Jesus to get our definition of a good life. He's the only one who knows what the good life is. And all throughout the word of God, we read that living the good life is the way that, as Jesus defines it, means that we have a life that we have freedom. We're set free in that life. It's not a, not a freedom to do what we want, but it's a freedom from the bondage of sin so we can do what God wants us to do. We've seen this in the larger context of Peter, the apostle, has been talking to us over these weeks and to those in his day, addressing the reality that they are being attacked, that they are being persecuted because of Jesus in their lives. And so he has been encouraging them and encouraging us that we are aliens here, you know, and uh, it's hard to bring glory to God in an alien culture, and especially one that's hostile towards the gospel. Peter's been explaining to us through all of these things that how born-again kingdom of God followers of Jesus can live as exiles and witnesses for Christ in all of these things. Now, since 1 Peter 2, verse 13, Peter's been focusing on how he can be witnesses of the gospel by pointing people to Jesus through our humble obedience as citizens, as slaves, employers, as husbands, as wives, as people watch us respond to the authority that 
is in our lives. In last week's text, Peter concluded his appeal to our witness of authority. And this morning he turns his focus to the witness towards us in our relationships together by telling us how to live the good life through Jesus. Now we clearly see this in our text because in these 14 verses, Jesus or, the, or Peter uses the word good seven times. So when something's repeated, God's saying, listen to this. The good life we know is something only Jesus can really know and define. The good life does not consist of a high standard of living or an abundance of wealth or possessions or comfort or security or success. The good life does not consist, too, of the busy pursuit we have in our world to find pleasure or meaning or satisfaction or rewards or personal excellence or positional status in life through the endless activities that the world offers us. We are a busy people and shame on us quite often. Living the good life as a witness of Jesus Christ means living a life that sets us free from all those things. Living the good life as a witness of Jesus Christ means living a life that is worthwhile, that makes a contribution, that joyfully gives purpose and satisfies us and fulfills us because it's centered on the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of self. Because the good life is about God not about us. The witness of the good life of Jesus is a life lived for the glory of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus lived the good life, and so we are to live the same good life Jesus lived if if we are following him. Jesus said, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Living the good life is doing all you can and everything you can to please God. Jesus lived the good life that way. He lived out also, and we need to do this, the confession that God and Jesus are our Lord, our Savior, and our King in all of life, in the good and in the bad. The good life is what Paul describes when he says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. The good life is doing and thinking and talking and representing God in a way that gives him glory in everything. In Philippians 2, Paul speaks of living the good life as Jesus did. Therefore, my beloved, he said, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This means his followers of Jesus Christ live the good life by obeying Jesus in everything that they do. Stephen, Peter, and Paul all lived the good life of Jesus. And they all suffered. And they all ultimately died for him. Stephen was stoned, Peter was crucified, Paul was beheaded. Yet it was the good life. But the Lord Jesus was with them, as he promised. Jesus said, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the good life for us will extend forever, ultimately. Getting back to our text, Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, 
sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires a love, whoever loves to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now in these five verses, Peter gives us ten commandments, so to speak. Or they're called imperatives in the grammar. Ten commands that we are to, to focus on that are foundational to living the good life. So it's ten commandments, ten imperatives in just these words. Born-again followers of Jesus Christ can, can obey these ten imperatives. They can. True believers are able to do so. We can obey Christ. We can do it if we immerse ourselves with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. We read of this in the, in the Bible. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So that's part of it. And then in Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing you in, in all wisdom. So he talks about different witnesses here that are commands. The first witness we read is the witness of living the good life in Jesus Christ is unity. The first command is that we are to have unity of mind. What this means is that those who are living the good life are to be of one mind based on their faith in Jesus Christ, which is based on the word of God, shown to us, revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. True followers of Jesus Christ are unified in their understanding of the absolute authority of God's word. Peter speaks of this because and this is a big thing for Paul, disunity, especially Christian in a Christian home or a Christian church, is a work of the devil and a work of the flesh, whereas the unity of mind is the work of the Holy Spirit. There's a whole shift, whole shift in this. There is no unity when it comes to the evil one. Wherever there is fighting, quarreling, gossiping, self-centeredness, disobedience to the spirit. It means someone gave a place for the devil to come in. In Romans 16, Paul warns us, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, he says. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but they have their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. In Romans 15, Paul declares, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The living witness, the greatest witness, the witness that is the good life is the witness of unity in God's people. Amen? We need a big amen on that one. Amen? Brothers and sisters, I, 
I can't really stress this more. I can't. Disunity in the church is a bane. It's a bane to, the, to, to us as our people. That's what we're known for. Not just this church, all churches. So we need to take this seriously. In Ephesians 4, verses 2 through 6, Paul writes, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Sounds like he's everywhere. The good life in Christ is the unity of one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. And there's no division in that. Amen? The witness of the living good life of Jesus is also sympathy. The Greek word for sympathy here literally means to suffer together. To suffer together. Our high priest, Jesus, as our high priest, he sympathizes with all of our troubles and he comes to our aid when we have difficulties. Uh, The writer of Hebrews says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what does this say? This says here, our Lord Jesus is able to sympathize with us and therefore we are then able to sympathize with each other and other people. Paul speaks of this in Romans 12 when he says, uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The problems of our brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters, are our problems. Not their problems, our problems. The true church is not a group of disconnected people going back and forth and not taking care of each other. We are all together as one. There's all sorts of places in the Bible. Paul especially talks about like if one part of the body is hurting, the whole body is hurting. And the older we get, the more we know that in our own bodies. We are one in the body. Therefore, we will have sympathy. The witness of living the good life of Christ is also love, we read here. The Greek word here for brotherly love speaks of a, a deep, deep love of the heart. Of such brotherly love, Jesus said this, A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The Apostle John writes, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Must, it says. We are brothers and sisters together. Amen? By adoption, not by wedding, by adoption. 
in one sense, God is our heavenly father and our Jesus is our older brother. In that, unlike Cain, who killed his brother, we are to die to save our brothers as Jesus died for us. We do so by the love that has been shed, like it says in Romans 5, that the Holy Spirit just pours his love into our hearts. The fruits, fruits of the Spirit is sacrificial love. It's not just saying I love you, it's loving and saying it and also doing it. The witness of the good life of Jesus Christ is also compassion. The Greek word here for a tender heart speaks of a, of a deep movement down in your gut that makes you move forward and solve the problem with the person who's struggling. We find this story in the Good Samaritan. A man is beaten and robbed and left for dead and the, the Levite and the priest did not help, but the Samaritan stopped. And we read, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him he had Compassion, there's that word. He was moved with compassion, which caused him to sacrificially help. And Peter is saying, if we're living the good life of Christ, we will feel deeply moved with compassion to solve the problems of others. That's inconvenient at times. And it's also hard at times. But this is what will happen if we are truly born again and if we are truly living the good life of Jesus. The Apostle Paul affirms this again in Ephesians 4 when he says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, again that word is compassionate, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. The witness of living the good life of Jesus is also humility. The Greek word here for humble mind literally is translated humble mind. <laughs> Sorry. We see this clearly in Jesus because he was humble, but he was never arrogant, never prideful. If Jesus is humble, then we should be humble. Amen? He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is our Lord, yet he did the humble job of washing the feet of his disciples. In Philippians 2, Paul wrote, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The good life of Jesus is a life of humility. Well, now here, uh, Peter takes a little different turn. Now, we've just looked at five imperatives, five commands. And here then, Peter says something else. In verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So what this means, just by itself, is, is we may, in our midst of trying to live the good life of Christ, someone might treat us badly. And we, we might want to repay that treatment that came to us, but we must not do so. 
We must follow Jesus' example. And Peter had already talked about this in 1 Peter 2, about Jesus when he said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges. Jesus himself said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul wrote this also in Romans 12 when he said, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then Paul says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. But why should we bless people when they do evil to us? Why should we? Because we read right here, because God has given us a blessing, it says. Given us a blessing. What does that mean? The duh. We have been, like he says in, Paul says in Ephesians, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. We've been predestined, we've been called, we've been justified, we've been saved, we've been blessed with mercy and grace and love. We have a blessing. God is saying, when people do bad things to you, don't forget you have been blessed by me. At this point, Peter continues to speak of the imperatives or the commands that are foundational to the good life. But this time he doesn't kind of put them in a row. What he does is, is he quotes Psalm 34, uh, the verses 12 through 16 in Psalm 34. And he begins that quote in verse 12 as a qualifier when he says, whoever desires to love life and see good days. What he's saying is, whoever wants to live a life full of love eternally and enjoy the good days they have on earth, they must obey the following imperatives that I say to you. And here they are. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So Peter's telling us here that the other witnesses of living for the good life of Jesus are controlling your mind, controlling your mouth, keeping your tongue from speaking things that are evil and bad towards other people, turning away from evil, seeking good, seeking peace, pursuing peace. And they humbly and obediently do so, we read, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Also knowing, it says, that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God blesses those who live the good life of Jesus, but he condemns those who do not. Peter then writes, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, 
nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good that it should be God's will than to do evil. Here Peter reminds us that living the good life for Jesus does not protect us from struggle, from suffering, from hardship, from persecution. The truth is we will suffer persecution if we truly do live the good life of Jesus. Suffering for Jesus is the lot of every born-again Christian. But Peter here asks the question, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? The answer is a lot of people, most people, because they reject Christ. Peter's response, well, even if you, if you do, if you suffer for what's doing right, God will reward you. Don't worry about it. So don't worry about it. Don't be afraid of frets. Worship Jesus as your Lord in your life, he says. And if someone asks you for the hope that you know in Christ, be ready to explain that to them, to tell them. But do it gently and respectfully. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you in any way, they will be ashamed when they see the good life that you live in the the face of all the things that they've done to you. Remember, it's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing the wrong thing. Peter then writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone, he says, into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, 1 Peter 3.18 is the the key statement in the Bible regarding what's called the substitutionary atonement of Christ which means, in our language, that Jesus suffered and died as the righteous one in our place because of our unrighteousness, bringing us back to God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God and put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, this is also the classic and the foundation of the gospel. The good news that Jesus died on a cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sins of rebelling against God, of rejecting God, to rescue us from eternal separation from God by raising from the dead and giving us a new life. And when we surrender our hearts and lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are then reconciled back to God in the kingdom of God adopted into the family of God, enabled to love God and other people as God loves us, giving also the the free gift 
of enjoying God forever and ever. And in all these things, we are then empowered by the Holy Spirit to live out uh, the good life of Jesus through the witness of unity and sympathy and love and compassion and humility and controlling our mouths and our minds, keeping our tongues from speaking evil, turning away from evil, seeking peace, pursuing peace, even in the midst of struggle and suffering. Peter ends his teaching in in an interesting way, uh, but still talking about the good life of Christ with the phrase, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now there's debate about some of these verses. That's kind of the mysteries of God, but the commonly held uh, belief here is this is a reference to demons or the offspring of demons who were imprisoned at the time of the flood of Noah chained in hopes that the execution of the Messiah would get their release, believing that once Jesus was crucified, they would be free. Ultimately, they heard the one who went to the cross rise up and proclaim victory over death. Peter then continues that same theme by drawing a comparison between the salvation of Noah's Ark and the salvation that we associate with baptism. In both instances, the believers uh, are saved through the waters of judgment. With the ark was one and the cross was the other. The problem here is that the mere act of baptism doesn't save because just washing your body with water will not wash away your sins. So baptism saves us only because it's a reflection of the inward faith we have in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Peter closes this section by proclaiming basically the triumph and the unchallenged rule and reign of Jesus Christ in the midst of all the struggles that we go through in life. That he is honored and he is glorified when we suffer for righteousness. And living the good life of Jesus means living a life that sets us free to humbly and powerfully obey the commands and the calls of Christ to point the world to Jesus Christ. I'd like to close just by reading Psalm 34 to you. The fullness of that, I think, will give you a picture of the heart that Peter's trying to get at here. Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil 
and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None who take refuge in him will be condemned. Father, we bless you for these words today uh, in the way that Peter has expressed to us the the character of what it means to, to have a good life in the kingdom of God and your expectations for us, Lord, and in the lives we are living even right now. And so help us, Lord, to, to absorb this in a way that would not only make a difference in our church, but also in our personal lives and in our community, in our families, and ultimately, Lord, we would have a good life in the way that you describe it, in the way that we want, you want us to live it out. So help us, Lord, as we go through this. And uh, we just bless you again for your word and for your uh, constant, Lord, goodness to us. We love you and we give you our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.